Let me remind you of the purpose of Reform Baptist Network. The purpose of Reform Baptist Network is to glorify God through fellowship and cooperation in fulfilling the Great Commission to the ends of the earth. Pretty simple, isn't it? Let me read it again. The purpose of Reformed Baptist Network is to glorify God through fellowship and cooperation in fulfilling the Great Commission to the ends of the earth. That's our stated purpose. And we're persuaded that as we fellowship together over these next several days, that our unity and our love for one another glorifies God. God is glorified as we fellowship. Isn't that nice? We get to enjoy fellowship. It's actually a whole lot of fun. And even as we're having fun, God is glorified. That is actually a marvelous thing. But also, as we endeavor to cooperate in the furtherance of the gospel, in the furtherance of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ, Wherever sinners are found, God is glorified. And we love to do that also, don't we? That's not, yes, there's sacrifice. Yes, there's hardship. Yes, when the rubber meets the road, when the boots are on the ground, there can be many battles, but it's also something we want to do. It's something that excites us, that we feel enthused about. And still, we get to glorify God. Isn't it wonderful? that we can be stirred up in the matter of missions and the Lord in heaven is truly glorified. Well, we're here to fulfill our purpose. Let's enjoy our fellowship. And as we do so, let's seek to stir one another up in the cause of missions, in the cause of the service of the King of Kings. Well, when we uh, were planning for this conference, I was asked, is there any speaker in Southern California that you would like to suggest? And uh, I had already had a bug in my ear about that anyway from Kurt Arendt, and uh, both of us had an agenda. And our agenda was to get Rick Anderson here so that he can meet you guys and you can meet Rick Anderson. Some of you know him. To know Rick is not to like Rick. <laughs> to know Rick is to love Rick. He's a good brother. I met him 23 years ago this month. Uh, we were both sitting in Sam Waldron's eschatology module. Uh, and uh, we, we got to know one another. And uh, Rick has been a faithful pastor for almost 30 years in Oxnard. Right Next year it's going to be 30 years. Doesn't look old enough. Uh, I can tell you, but uh, he's a faithful pastor. He's a, a preacher that God has used to encourage the saints in various places all over the world. And uh, we're just so glad that he's here tonight. He's one of the founding fathers of FIRE, uh, the Fellowship of Independent Reformed Evangelicals. Um, we, in this church, we're also uh, members of FIRE, as are another couple of our RBNet churches. Well, Rick's one of the old guys. He's one of the, the old men that all us young guys look up to, you know. Uh, but it's a joy to have him here. Uh, and we're going to ask him to come. And it, it, it be, be one of the, the means that God uses to expand his kingdom. How does the kingdom come? If not through the preaching of the word of God, the faithful declaration of scriptural truth. And we rejoice that you're here, Rick. Please come, and we trust that you'll feel welcome, brother. Uh, we trust that the Lord will give you some liberty and preach the word and let us have it. Okay. God bless you, man. I don't know why he keeps referring to me as an old person. <laughs> but I probably am one of the oldest here, I think. So it is a privilege uh, to be here and uh, speak with you, brothers and sisters. Uh, some of you, um, I went to, was going to Montville in my early days after graduating from the Master's Seminary in 1989, and then had the privilege uh, to, to go to those Montville conferences and was able to meet, I think, many of you 
uh, but uh, since I'm so old, I don't remember all of you, and you all look different than when we all uh, were younger. But it is a privilege uh, to bring the Word of God, and I am grateful for the opportunity, and what a wonderful theme, uh, missions, because He is worthy. And I am grateful for the topic that I was assigned. I love to be assigned a topic rather than a theme or and a specific text. And my text is Luke chapter 9, uh, verses 23 through 26, if you will please turn there. And I am conscious, dreadfully so, that many of you have come from the East Coast. Uh, and so now it's 10.30 at night that I'm ministering to you. Uh, already having had dinner, and so uh, uh, I'm just praying for grace for you, and I'm sure you're praying for grace for me. But Luke chapter 9, just a very familiar passage, and I want to read verses 18 through 27, 18 through 27. My focus will be verses 23 through 26. My topic is losing your life to keep at the universal condition of discipleship. And it came about while he was praying alone and the disciples were with him, he questioned them, saying, Who do the multitudes say that I am? And they answered and said, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering for fellowship. And we thank you, Lord God, for the means that you give us to be instructed, to be taught, to be strengthened in our faith, to be guided in our practice, and Lord God, to be encouraged in our cooperation for the sake of the gospel. And we are so thankful for this inerrant and perfect, infallible, precious, forever established in heaven word that you've given to us that reveals your perfect Son, our Savior. Father, will you help me and will you grant me grace to speak faithfully the text? And God, will you bless us and help us that the force of truth would impress us, that it would encourage us, that it would remind us again of things that are on our minds. But Lord, by that very word, will you enliven and quicken us to its faithful practice. We need you. Oh, and Father, we thank you that you hear us when we cry. In Jesus' name, amen. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Alexander McLaren said, the meaning of being a Christian is that in response to the gift of a whole Christ, I give my whole self to him. And that is the point. That is what a Christian is. In response to the gift of a whole Christ, then I give my whole self to him. And that certainly ought to apply to us who are ministers of the gospel. What a wonderful theme. And what a wonderful theme is mine to really declare that and preach it uh, from the text that Christ himself calls us to for, from it. Edwards, uh, as we're told by Marsden in his masterful uh, history or 
uh, bio biography of Jonathan Edwards said that Brainerd was his paradigm for how he saw the Christian life. He was the exemplar, really, of true religious affections, and Edwards felt it a matter of privilege that Brainerd would die in his home. Well, I don't have such a one sitting at my feet that I could say would be the paradigm of, of Christian commitment and devotion, but I have one historically uh, that uh, maybe you might be familiar with. Uh, a young man by the name of William Borden. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that biography or not, but Borden, at the turn of the 20th century, was a household name, like Trump or Gates or Turner. They didn't write tweets, they didn't have any of those things, but the names were synonymous with wealth and status and privilege. William Borden was born into the fabulous Borden wealth at the turn of the 20th century. And he himself was a gifted young man with the prospects of a very profitable career. He believed on the Lord Jesus Christ when he was seven years old under the preaching of R.A. Torrey at Moody Bible Church. And under, under the faithful diligence and prayer of his mother, an early devotion made for an early dedication of all of himself fully for the rest of his life to follow Christ. And this text was significant to him in the formation of that young life. At 17 years old, because he was able to, and his mom was concerned that he'd able to do that, she sent him on a trip around the world, not by airplanes, but by boat. And he traveled through, across the world through Japan, China, India, Rome, and England. And through the course of it, he got a vision of a dying world. And at 17 years old, he committed himself and felt that he was called by God to go to northern China to minister to the Muslims. And that became his focus from 17 years on. He attended Yale University, where he was diligent in his studies, served on the student council, played on the tennis team, and devoted himself to Bible studies and gathering men who themselves, under his encouragement, would go and preach the gospel to every student at Yale University. And Borden himself saying, if there's some any difficult ones, then give them to me. He was dedicated, as it were, to proclaim Jesus Christ and make him known at Yale University. While he was there with his own funds and with his own initiative, he established the New Haven Rescue Mission. He gave the funds to build the mission, and then he gave his life while he was a student uh, to go to that mission and minister there and preach there during his years at Yale University. He left an impression upon those men, those derelicts and drunks and addicts there at the New Haven Mission. During the summer times, when he would go home, he would take care of an invalid aunt. And then he would go back to school. After graduating from Yale University, he went on to Princeton with that intention to fulfill a, a ministry in China. He finished at Princeton, continued to minister at Yale, continued, continued to be a practical help to his family and his invalid aunt. And then, after a few months of graduating from seminary, he left to fulfill his lifetime ambition with the China Inland Mission, and he began that mission by going into Egypt, where he began to learn Arabic. He was there for three weeks learning Arabic, and while he was there for those first three weeks, he himself organized a house-to-house -house canvassing of the city with Christian literature. Within two weeks after being there three weeks, he contracted cerebral meningitis. And in two weeks, he was dead at 25. Now, you know what the world would have said. The world said the very same thing that the disciples said as that woman poured the ointment of nard upon the head of Jesus Christ just before his death. What a waste. When he, when he died, he had millions. And millions he had given away. What a waste, the world said. One of his friends said, I have no feeling of waste. I have no feeling, he said, of a life cut short. He says, a life abandoned to Christ cannot be cut short. Cut short means not completed, interrupted. And we know that our master does no halfway jobs. A wasted life, he said, no, it was spent all of it to the end for Christ. 
It was not wasted. And really, this, this is what this text is all about. This text is not about a one-time, momentary, volcanic expression of Christian ardor and commitment. This is the essential, this is the elementary, this is the long way, the whole way to heaven. This is what it means to be a Christian. It is to give my whole life for him who has loved me. This is my subject text. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You are so familiar with it. And that's one of those texts that you just hate to preach. Is one that everybody's familiar with and everybody probably has preached very, very well. And so what I want to do is I, I want to speak by way of reminder. I want to speak by way of encouragement. I want to speak by way, just prayerfully, of just setting it forth in its simplicity, that even by the simple proclamation of in its straightforward content, that it would be exhortative, and that the very force of truth would impress us, that we would be renewed in the basic call of Christian discipleship, and, and what really our title is, is that basic un that universal condition. And so uh, that's what I'm going to take up. Let me just say, first of all, and state the obvious, it is a universal condition. Notice what Christ says, for if anyone, it's available to all, it's open to all, the call goes to all, if anyone, let him, for whoever wishes. This is a, this is a glorious Call. It's set forth for all, for anyone who desires to take up with Christ. It is required of all who would come. That's all I'm going to say about the universal character of it. I want to speak about its singular focus first. What is the focus, or really what should I say is, who is the focus of the call? The focus is the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever wishes to come after me. It's marked by those who have a desire to come after Christ. It is that those who themselves, by a spirit-wrought revelation in their own eyes and hearts, have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. This call comes, as you know, after that divine revelation, that supernatural light has come to Peter, and he has confessed that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. It is a spirit-wrought revelation of seeing beauty in the face of God, to seeing the character and worthiness of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Missions because He is worthy, because God is worthy and His Son is worthy. It's a revelation that leads to a constant looking and a cleaving to Him by faith and a willingness to identify with Him as life itself. It is a captivating and all-absorbing revelation. It, this is what moves. This is what moves a Borden. This is what moves a Carey. This is what moves an Edwards. This is what ought to move every single saint is that glorious supernatural understanding that there is glory in the face of Christ. This is what a Christian is. He sees glory in the Son of God. And he wants to go after Him. Now why do I say this? And why do I make the point of it maybe at the outset before I even really get to the subject matter of the nature of that, of that condition? It is because Christianity can often be, as we look at this idea of denying self, taking up a cross and following Christ, that Christianity is simply something negative. That is just simply a renouncing of certain things. And the reality is, as we shall see, is that Christianity is a renunciation but it is a renunciation of all things because I have reevaluated all those things in the light of someone else. It is a reevaluation that leads to the renunciation. And, and now it is the glory of Christ. Christ is simply the great delight of the heart. The Christian is like Jesus says in the parable in 19 of in Matthew 13 of the pearl merchant who goes out trying to find a pearl when he finds the one of great price what does he do he garage sales everything else 
Nothing else matters because I found it. And it's not a dreary, it's not a morose, it's not a, a, a martyrdom kind of garage sailing. He's throwing it all out because he has found something so immensely valuable, nothing else matters. That's what a Christian is. We're not talking here, even as we're going to go, we're not talking about a higher life. We're not talking about a second stage of Christianity. We are talking about bare bones, supernatural preoccupation and absorption with the Son of God. Whatever things were gained to me, Paul says, what? Those things I have considered as loss, loss for the sake of Christ. And he keeps saying it. More than that, I count all things to be lost twice in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things that I may gain him. I count them all rubbish. And I really like, I think it's the King James that says dung. Because it's just more graphic in my mind. I mean... I don't have a dog anymore in my backyard, but I hated to mow the lawn because I had to do poop patrol. But listen, I mean, Paul is saying this. Oh, look at you, Paul. You are giving up so much. He says, okay, what is it? Well, it's status, reputation, advancement, all of those kinds of things. And you just kind of pile it all up. And you know what Paul would say it is. It's a pile of dung. It's a pile of dung to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this is that supernatural preoccupation, reevaluation that changes everything. It was, that was what it was for Paul, wasn't it? Damascus' experience changed him forever. And it changed the tables, it turned everything over for him, and this is what it is. For me to live is. Christ. I mean, you could put him on the psychiatric couch and show him all kinds of pictures, but you'd only get one word out of that man. Christ, 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 Christ. The Romans would put him in jail and threaten him. You know, I can imagine that. You know, we can't. No. Well, we'll kill you. Ha. Ah, to die is gain. So what can you do to a man like that? This is, this is how it all begins, you see. It all begins this way with this supernatural appraisal and evaluation which God himself gives to us. And may God never, ever take away the beauty of Christ from us. May, we never, may he never become stale of luster in our hearts. May as we come to the scripture, we might say, show me, show me even more and more your glory in the face of your son. Show me more and more the value of the son of God that I myself might look at this world the way I ought to look at this world and look at my life the way I ought to look at my life. Now I want to take up that, I want to take up those practical elements of it now. We're moving, we're moving through my outline. I've only got one more major point after this. And this one only has three points under it. And you will hear me say finally, and that's the good part for you late East Coast people, but here it is. The practical elements, the practical elements of this universal condition. It's, it's really in one sense, it's just summed up. It's summed up in verse 24, but whoever loses his life for my sake. That sums it up. And you've heard Bonhoeffer's observation, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The pattern, and again, in the context of this, is already established by the one whom they're to follow. The one with whom now they've been obsessed with. The one whom now they have seen glory in. He is the one who has already set the pattern. I am going to be rejected, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. Now you follow me. The pattern comes from the very one who calls them. 
And the grace as well to follow that pattern comes from the one who will die to give them that grace and rise again that they might follow him in faith. And so here it is. It's not optional. And so let me set forth its elements. And, I, and I, if I, I'm just going to put it in these words, just in a statement, a sentence, what this condition is. It's a deliberate self-denial that is willing to suffer and sacrifice all things for Christ's sake. It is a deliberate self-denial that is willing to sacrifice and suffer all things for Christ's sake. And I'm just taking it up that way. It is a deliberate self-denial. Let him deny himself. This does not mean that we are to live as if self did not exist because that's make-believe. It does not mean that we are to live so as to destroy ourselves because that is against nature. It does not mean uh, primarily that I am to have no interest in my interests, but what it does mean is that my self-interest no longer has the supremacy in my life. That myself, this, this which I am born consumed with, this, this around which my soul and life orbits as the sun, is now as a speck on the radar of my primary concerns and interests. It is to be all done with myself as the major matter of my life, done with giving self the first say in what I do and why I do something. It is to cease to be primarily concerned about or preoccupied with my welfare, my comfort, my reputation, my name, what people think of me, and I'm all concerned with what they think of him and his interests. It is a practical abandonment of self-interested, self-pleasing, self-promotion, and a willingly laying aside of personal privilege, preferences, and prerogatives where the interests of Christ and his kingdom are concerned. It is like Paul says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. And you, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. That is a self-denying motto. Because he's conscious, listen, that I may become a partaker of it. And I would submit to you, it is a partaker of its blessings. A partaker of its eternal blessings. He knows where life is found. He knows that this is the way of life. We're called not to give up ambition, but to change it from self-pleasing to Christ-pleasing. And the mastering motive behind it all is what we hear Paul saying in 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that they should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Christ's self-denying, self-giving love for him was what motivated Paul to give up himself in self-denying, loving sacrifice for others. I am so loved. And how was I loved? I was loved by the self-denial of the Son of God and the sacrifice that he made. And that's, that's the only way that Paul could ever look at his life. And he was motivated by the love of Christ for him. I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but the life which I now live, I live in the flesh the life which I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And he says, as who loved me. He never got over not only the beauty of Christ, but he, but he was compelled by the work of Christ on his behalf. It was not his love for Christ. Indeed, it was manifested. But it was the love of Christ which motivated. The love which Christ motivated him. Second, it's not just simply, and simply maybe is kind of a poor wording, a deliberate self-denial. But it's a willingness to sacrifice and suffer all things. It is carried out 
in what we would just simply call a daily death. Take up his cross daily. Jesus lets us know at the very beginning uh, what is going to mark us to the very end. It's costly and it's constant. We are to be wholly done every single day. We are to be as that woman. We are to be pouring out every day whatever we have in the bottle over the head of Jesus Christ in our lives. This is a lifetime self-renunciation that is without reservations that is to be carried out in daily installments. And I think it probably will be spoken about in one of the messages, messages later on this week. There was no confusion what Christ meant when he said take up the cross. It wasn't a necklace. It wasn't a bad spouse. It wasn't a gnarly employer. It wasn't ill health. A cross was a gas chamber. A cross was a gallows. And there was no confusion when he said take it up where you were going if you took it up. You were going to the gallows. You were done with yourself. If someone came to you carrying a cross and said, I wonder, now I've got to be careful of my illustrations, will the Dodgers beat the Rockies and get into the playoffs? It means nothing. Probably means nothing to a lot of you anyway right now. But the fact is, nothing means anything then. When you're going to the gallows, you are all done. And when you're going to the gallows, everything is quite clear. That life itself is very short and death is very sober and certain. And that there is heaven and hell and there is judgment on the other side. And you begin to see everything very clear when you're going to a gallows. This was not a suicidal intention that Jesus had for his own, nor to be morose, nor to be reckless, but it is that I want you to live as it were on the edge of eternity. And I want you to live your, your life as if your life really doesn't matter, not where my sake is concerned. It issues out of a personal conviction that Paul himself declares in Romans 14, no one of us lives for himself and no one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Living and dying, everything about my existence is related and rooted in Christ. It results in putting to death self-importance, self-satisfaction, self-absorption, self-advancement, self-dependence. And it issues out of a personal reckoning, a personal reckoning about my life. What Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 24. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. Is that fixed on you? I read that, and, and we know what it's saying. And as I read it, I want to embrace it with the whole of my being, and yet I realize even the resistance of my own love of self and love of life. More even at times, obviously, than Christ himself. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. In terms of what I am about, Paul says I'm expendable. My life is not so dear that I will not part with it for Christ's sake. Jesus said as much, didn't he? When everybody's following him in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, Christ has claims on everything over our life. He's got the superior claim. He demands a superior loyalty. And as we know, he is worthy. But then he says, does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life. 
He cannot be my disciple. We hate our own lives, not in a hasty passion, but in a holy submission to the will of God and a resolution that everything that I am and have is at the disposal of the Son of God. And I'm holding on to nothing for His sake. I am willing, as it were, in, in that wonderful language, as Paul says, when I die daily, if really just taking his whole self, he's not saving himself, not for years, he's not saving himself any time. When he ministers, he's giving his all, laying it as it down as it were dying daily knowing that the God who raises from the dead will raise him up if he's pleased the next day for another labor of self-denying renunciation and self-giving of it all he's not saving any part of himself I am ready he says in Acts 21 to the Caesarean the Caesarean disciples when they themselves receiving the word by the spirit himself that Paul is going to find bonds and afflictions at the hands of his kinsmen. He is saying, listen, I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die for the name of Jesus. And prepared to die, we're prepared for everything else. If your life is ready to be laid on the line for Jesus Christ, then there is nothing. There is no obstacle to such a one. There is no true discipleship, said H.C. Trumbull. No true discipleship of Jesus does not, that does not reach this far. He who would not die for a Savior does not live for his Savior. And maybe we, maybe we, 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 we trick ourselves, because now the illustration comes to my mind of the man that, that went to the marriage seminar and says, how many of you men would lay down your lives for your wives? And every one of them raised their hand. If your wife's car stalled on the tracks, how many of you would just take your car and push it off? And just almost unanimous male hands went up. And then he says, how many of you will get out of your chair and help her with the dishes? Yeah, I'll die for her. Just don't make me do anything for her. You see, Jesus isn't looking for heroes. He's not looking for heroes that are going out and seeking martyrdom. He's looking for people who will live their lives, pour out their lives, as if their lives do not matter for the sake of Christ and for the sake of others. He's looking at that daily dying and the sacrifices that aren't heroic. Borden never got to China. And you say, what a waste. But you know what Borden was doing? He was laying it down day after day at Yale University for the sake of souls. Laying it down at the Yale mission. Laying it down with an invalid aunt. Laying it down in prayers. Laying it down all he could, everything he could. He didn't get to the front line. But he himself was living and dying for Christ all the time. It's a call to be living martyrs, daily dying to self, crucified to the world, devoted to death for Christ's sake. Twenty years ago, John Piper wrote that he, in his church he was trying to mobilize martyrs. And he says he told his people, he says, what I'm asking you parents to do this Saturday at our church is to bring your children to the Muslim Awareness Seminar. To instill in them a mindset that will enable them to die for Jesus someday. So don't bring them if you don't want that to happen. That's pretty sober. Maybe some of you have read, and, and, I, and I'm not sure, of Adoniram Judson as he went to his future wife's father to ask for her hand in marriage. And maybe you've heard the language that he used as he spoke to that potential father-in-law. He knew, he knew what this all means. I have to ask you, he says to the father-in-law, whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring. Oh, a spring wedding. Oh, no. To see her no more in this world. 
Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the climate of India, to every kind of wanton distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and for the glory of God? That's what it means to be married to Jesus. There's going to be no advance without this settled reckoning. There will be no movement forward of the kingdom of God and the gospel without this living and dying mindset in God's minister and people. Too many people want the fruit of Paul's ministry without paying the price and making the reckoning that he himself made. What general would not want someone like that? What general would not want one who himself has already died for the cause and now anything for the cause he gives his whole self to? No, I, I want to die on the mission field. But help set tables for the fellowship lunch? You see, it gets down to everything we do and the way that we think about it and why we're doing it. We can do a lot of self-denial. There's a lot of self-denial going on. There's a lot of personal sacrifice going on. There's a lot of philanthropy going on. But none of it is for the sake of Christ because He's worthy and glorious. And there's a lot not going on in the small places because everybody wants the big place. Third, it's a deliberate self-denial that is willing to sacrifice and suffer all things for Christ's sake. What does he say? Drop it all. Renounce it all. Come with a resolve that you're done with yourself and follow me. Cleave to me, believe in me, obey me. He's calling for a fundamental loyalty that subordinates everything in my life to the will and pleasure and glory of Jesus Christ, a living attachment to him, a determination to do his will no matter what the cost, because it is his will. I mean, and he lets us know, doesn't he? I mean, at the end of this chapter, after he himself in Verse 51, sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Then you have some of these little ones that kind of scamper up at the end of the chapter, wanting to come and join with Jesus Christ. And he tells them, hey, you better count the cost. I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. If you're going to come with me, you better let go. He said to another one, follow me. But he said, permit me first to go and bury my father. Get on now and hold on. Another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, please permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Jesus said, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Get on, hold on, and never look back. How far, how long, to the end of your days. Paul says, I do not count my life as of any concern to myself. I, it doesn't enter into the accounting of what I myself will do for the Savior whose life is beyond all things valuable to me. He says, I do not count myself, my life of any account as dear to myself. Listen to what he says. In order that I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from Jesus Christ to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. The Living Bible 
says it this way, life is worth nothing unless I use it for the work assigned to me by the Lord. He is determined, he is willing to renounce all things with a resolve to give up his whole life in a, uh, and lay it down daily for the sake of Christ to the end. Devoted above life, devoted for life, however the Lord would give him. That's what he's saying. That I may faithfully and fully finish the course. He is not just simply interested in passing time. He isn't just simply interested in counting off the years before a ministerial retirement. He knows that while he has life and while he has breath, that the calling upon his life still remains. It may change by strength. It may change by because of other disabilities or whatever it may be, but he will still be in the work to the ends of his days, whether he lives to 29 like Brainerd or whether he lives to 83. Whether it's 59 like Whitfield or somewhere in there, 50, I don't know where it was. It doesn't make any difference how long, even if it's 25. He's clear about the work. He knows what the work is. He knows what he needs to do to declare the good news of the free favor of a glorious God. And he's gripped with the grace that God has gripped him with. He goes with an apostolic burden that those themselves under the burden and weight of their own iniquity and sin and judgment and are ignorant of that fact. He goes to bring the light of a glorious son sent from heaven, identifying with them in his nature and in that nature, taking their sin, their guilt, their judgment, drinking their cup, their wrath, and taking it down and defeating the hell, hell the devil, and sin itself, and rising again on the third day and through him there is the offer freely to all who will receive it of the forgiveness of sins and favor with the living God and he says I've got to finish that and he desires to be able to say at the end of his day just like the Savior said at the completion of his earthly work on Golgotha's cross it is finished and I finished as well as I could. Gardner Spring sums up the matter. Once he says, and he's speaking of the disciple, he says, once he denied Christ for himself, now he denies himself for God. Once he lived to himself, now he lives to God. No duty is so hard let me say this, let me add to Gardner Springs, and no duty is so trivial that he is not willing and resolved to perform it. No sin is so sweet that he, he will, he is that he is not willed and resolved to forsake it. Nothing is too dear to give to Christ, nothing too great to be cheerfully sacrificed for the promotion of his glory. He knows that he is just but a point in the universe of God, a single member of Christ's mystical body, and he is willing that God should lift him up or cast him down at his pleasure because it is his pleasure, and his own advancement is as a feather when put in the balance against the honor of Christ and the good of his kingdom kingdom. Jim Elliot, as you know, said he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep, everything else, to gain what he cannot lose. Christ Jesus and all of the eternal blessings that are found in that glorious mediator. And I just say this, no one no one who ever gives himself wholly in the service of a savior will ever feel slighted. You know what's the most frustrating thing to do? Is to live, as Spurgeon said, as a halfling. Is to live as somebody just trying to bide time, bear a name, do enough to appear that you are devoted. No, there is no satisfaction in that. You will be the most miserable halfling all your days. There is no pleasure, there is no joy but in giving up all and making him your all. Borden had a favorite little couplet to lines. And must I part with all I have, Jesus my Lord, for thee? 
This is my joy, since thou hast done much more than this for me. Yes, let it go, one look from you will more than make amends for all the losses I sustain of credit, riches, friends. David Livingston, after his ministry in Africa, began to minister in the churches of England and at colleges. This is what he said. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own reward of healthful activity? The consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter. He says, away with such a word, away with such a view, away with what, such a thought that that is a sacrifice. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then, that may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and sink. But let it be only for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory that shall be revealed in and for us. And then he says, I never made a sacrifice. And we'd say, well, I beg to differ. But not to him. No, because the, the giving over the losing his life for Jesus Christ was nothing but gain. I never made a sacrifice of this we ought not to talk when we remember the great sacrifice which he made who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. After William Borden died in that Cairo hospital, they found a note on his bedstand. Here's what it said. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. No reserve. I will hold nothing back. No retreat. I will not turn back from the service of Christ. No regrets. I will never look back. Dear brothers and sisters, may this, by God's grace, be the conviction and commitment of our lives and ministries by his grace. Amen.